Welcome to AI Decision Making as Existential Threat or Salvation. So this is a little background on who I am. I've been in quality a long time. Uh, quality, reliability, uh, supply management, <laughs> uh, oil and gas engineering is basically where I started. Anyway, I've been in this business engineering a long time. Professional engineer. I think what's critical about this slide is uh, we've been doing Homeland Security for better part of 20 years. So uh, um, basically, we've been doing uh, Homeland Security Assurance and Forensics. So it's been a fun journey, and it'll sort of be an intro to what we're going to be talking about. So today, I'm going to be talking about five topics. I'm not going to read off the slides. I'm basically going to talk around them. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm giving the same talk in, in a variation or two over the next uh, five weeks. Two of them in UK, as a matter of fact, or in Europe, virtually. And when I'm keynoting uh, International Quality Week using this talk. So some of these talks that I'm giving have clickbait to them, and I'm gonna try to be a little bit straight up, straightforward about it. So the, these are the five topics I'm gonna cover. AI context, and if you're with me last month, my talk was uh, context or understanding context is worth 20 IQ, EQ points. Today, I'm going to be talking about AI decision-making, uh, then AI risk, and then I'm going to talk about how to ensure trust, which is the, probably the number one issue right now with AI, and then I'm going to talk about AI futures. So how did this journey start? Uh, my daughter, Margot is a senior at Oregon State University in computer science. Every senior has to have a project. So last August in 2022, I gave her two options. You could write a working it app. We own workingit.com, future work app. Or you could take this sort of unknown standard called the Artificial Intelligence Risk Management Framework and develop an app around it. So our proposal is the one on the left that we presented to Oregon State, which they approved. And the splash screen of our app is on the right side. So the idea is uh, artificial. By the way, we started this project six months before the standard was developed. So I think that's important to understand. Uh, we preempted the market. This app, essentially the standard AI RMF, is basically going to become the global standard for almost all uh, AI. At least that's what the White House and the NIST want to do with it. So long story short, she basically developed an app with me. And all of our stories are, evolve around that. The other thing now is she wants to take it uh, uh, out in the market and basically become a unicorn. A unicorn essentially is a company with a billion dollar market cap. Anyway, we think it's going to be that big of an issue. So that's how our journey started. And what I'm going to do for the first couple of minutes is provide some context on AI because we've sort of become gurus, international gurus on this, largely because we preempted the market. So one of the big things out there is what's the size of the AI market? So just to give you an idea, the information on the left shows that the US GDP is around 23 trillion. Uh, the global web by 2030 is gonna be 81 billion. Uh, right now, we don't know what the size of the AI market is gonna be in 2030. A lot of speculation, a lot of fear, a lot of uh, hand-wringing. But here are two numbers, just to sort of give you an idea. And I'm, again, these two numbers are magnitude different. One uh, estimate of the growth of the 2030 AI, AI market is 1.8 trillion dollars or 1,800 billion dollars. Another one by T PWC below, 
PwC is Price Waterhouse Coopers, is basically 16 trillion. Now to put that in comparison, our GDP is around 23 trillion. PwC is estimating that the global AI market is going to be pretty close to our GDP. So that gives you an idea of the impact of AI from a lot of different sources. Now, what's it going to be? Who knows? But it's important regardless, and it's big. So let's define a few terms here. Uh, what's AI? AI, I can give you the Turing test, but I'm going to try to keep it simple. AI is the ability of a machine or system to mimic human intelligence to do tasks. Uh, why does AI matter to you? Well, and this is what we're going to focus on, is AI forms the basis of computer learning, and more importantly, the future of decision-making. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next 30, 40 minutes is decision-making. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, and probably more importantly, the opportunities. So I'm going to try to give you a balanced presentation. Um, we're giving this talk, as a matter of fact, in the, in Europe over the next couple of weeks. So it'll be interesting to see how they respond to it. But the same data, the same impacts uh, will uh, influence them as well as us, or frankly, everybody around the world. So a little history. Much of our perceptions and quite frankly, our reactions to AI have been driven by movies. Uh, the first one you can see, Crush, Kill, Destroy, Killer Android and Lost in Space, sort of a kiddie program on, that you can see on, uh, on television. Or another one, Terminator, which we're probably all seen, you know, either one, two or three. Uh, basically, it's this... <laughs> I John says you can't go around killing people and the Terminator in its AI intelligence says, well, why not? Well, that's essentially the fear that many of us have about AI. And hopefully I'll dispel some of that fear and focus on opportunities, opportunities for you. So I gave a talk, a professional talk about a year ago to Charter Quality Institute. It was a clickbaity title how to double your salary. Anyway, uh, 400 people showed up, maybe a little more globally. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> the clickbait title got a lot of interest and I'm still keeping, I'm still giving talks over there at CQI in the UK. Uh, but anyway, we'll talk about how to double your salary as well, if not triple it throughout this talk. So, the second phase we're going to talk about ai decision making and i'll just give you a couple general observations on decision making through ai um it's everywhere it's from siri to alexa on amazon it's all over the place quite often it's hidden quite often right now it's informational that's and that's an important distinction when you go to siri it gives you information Maybe it gives you some background, but it really does not make decisions for you. Same way with Alexa, it gives you options, but at the end of the day, you, the human, make the decision. Second thing is algorithmic uh, black box decision-making is black box. We don't know what's going on in the box. And that's gonna be a, a what we would call a takeaway in this talk. Um, I got involved with Lisp early language 40 some odd years ago. Uh, uh, Lisp was an early, uh, what we would call AI <laughs> type of language. Um, and it was very good. Uh, and it became the basis for machine learning and other languages. But when we did early AI, the inputs were causal to the outputs. In other words, we knew what the relationship was. A uh, couple of years later, 20 years later, we would provide inputs. There would be a software engine and there would be an output. It wouldn't be causal, it would be correlative. 
Now with generative AI, we're putting inputs into a black box and we don't know what's coming out of that black box anymore in terms of decision-making. Um, we like to think that there's a correlation somewhere, but we really can draw that. We can statistically de derive that in many cases. And that's a big fear. And as a matter of fact, if you're interested, go start searching some of the academic papers on that. There are a lot of them out there. Um, neural nets, ML, don't have a descriptive logic structure. Uh, bias, whether it's human or machine, gets baked into the algorithmic decision-making. The rules of machine engagement, and we're going to talk about that a lot today. The rules between human and machine have not been defined. And I'll try to make an attempt to start defining some of those rules of engagement. And finally, China. Ah, <laughs> uh, boy. Geopolitics, geoeconomics, probably is another discussion, but probably not for today, really. But it's a big issue, and we'll talk about that maybe for a minute toward the end of the talk today. So let's look at five different types of decision-making that's being done right now. Um, you've probably seen these five pictures. I use them a lot for my talks. But today I'm going to talk about decision-making from an autonomous basis. So fast food decision-making. Let's say you own a franchise, McDonald's in this case. Uh, or it can be... Um, <laughs> it could be any other type of franchise. Two things are happening. One, we're seeing robots in the back end of the franchise, such as Flippy on, Flippy on the right-hand side. Uh, right now, a lot of McDonald's have a minimum wage in California of $20 an hour. Plus benefits, uh, it really pushes fast food restaurants to make money. So you're the owner of the franchise. What are you going to do? You're going to hire Flippy the Hamburger robot, as you can see on the right. One, basically 100% of the new McDonald's are automated using AI. You can just go to a new McDonald's and see how you order. Uh, one third of them use some type of Flippy, meaning a robot that flips hamburgers. One third. What does that mean? Well, it's job displacement at the low end of the market. And we're going to be talking about job displacement in other areas as well. But you can see part of that is autonomous decision-making. Now, interestingly, the head of the Teamsters last week, you know, said, we want to strike. Why? Autonomous vehicles, autonomous uh, truck drivers. Would you rather have a a bus with a driver or a bus with no driver. Again, the human is making the decision right now, but eventually, within probably five to 10 years, we're going to have autonomous vehicles. And of course, the teams is right now are really worried about that. SAG, Screen Actors Guild, uh, they went on strike three, four months ago. Why? Because of avatars and autonomous decision-making in the movie industry. So decision-making, whether it's people, corporate, uh, or autonomous, is becoming sort of what we would call uh, combined. And uh, it's going to create more problems. This one is right now a major issue. We've been involved with a couple of these little goodies. Um, African-American, could be an Asian, is going to be interviewed for a job. Uh, essentially, the first two interviews are going to be done right now, are being done by machine. Challenge is that black box algorithm, a lot of the assumptions, a lot of the history, a lot of the data is unknown. And if it's based on history, chances are it's got some type of bias baked into the algorithm either in terms of data, historical data, or the way it simply makes decisions. Right now, for example, the White House 
is very, very concerned about this. They just issued a report last week on that. So um, a lot of issues involved. This one here is just an interesting one. Um, autonomous decision-making is being used by hospitals. It's also being used by radiologists. Um, so we have a radiologist and he or she looks at a scan and well, their sensitivity right now is 72%, meaning accuracy. It's a little not, it's not really accuracy, but it's, let's say it's sensitivity. Now we know that number is pretty correct because any of us in quality reliability have set up visual inspection programs know that human inspection, visual inspection is only 80% accurate. And if radiologists have a 72% sensitivity rating, that's pretty close to our numbers in quality and reliability. But in a report that was done about four months ago, a study, AI is 99.1% sensitive compared to 72% for the radiologist. So that begs the question, what's the role of a radiologist now? And I'll give you a heads up. I think that the role, whether it's a truck driver or whether it's a radiologist, is to be the interface between man and machine. The machine, meaning the robot or the AI program, is going to make the decision. But we need to have a human interface. And I call that the assurance interface between the machine and the human. And how long will that last? Probably for about another 10 years before the machine has all the attributes, or many of the attributes of, <laughs> of a human. Now, interestingly, last month, there was a, a sensitivity study of whether we could make a machine uh, as humanly possible, or what's the right word? would have the integrity and the resonance of a human, especially in, in healthcare. And surprisingly, the machine scored higher than the physician in providing human contact. Now, interestingly, right now, there was, a <laughs> there was an article about autonomous dating uh, through an avatar. Anyway, the bottom line is medical decision-making, quality decision-making, uh, reliability decision-making is going to be impacted by AI in ways that even now we don't know. This is another scary area, and um, it's public policy, public safety decision-making. Do we want robots to be in public safety or law enforcement? Um, so two things. San Francisco, very liberal. Oakland, very liberal. Can't get enough police. The last police academy that graduated last month had three people in it. Nobody wants to be a police officer in uh, San Francisco. Uh, five, 10 years ago, that was the one of the most compelling jobs in the country in law enforcement. Now, nobody wants to be a police officer in California. So what's the solution? Well, crime is spiking all over the West Coast. And Oakland, one of the most liberal cities in the country, was considering using lethal robots. Uh, again, crime is spiking. And they were thinking of having robots with visual recognition, facial recognition, and uh, lethality, some type of lethal weapon attached to it. Uh, well, it went through city council. The police unions basically approved it. The backlash from the people was so big that they just simply uh, uh, took that motion away. In the meantime, last week in New York, uh, the mayor of the city ex-police captain NYPD said, oh, 
we're going to have uh, robots in Times Square. Again, not with lethal weapons, but it'll have facial recognition and lethal lethality will be available when and if. And then finally, of course, here's the <laughs> singularity. Right now we have dogs that can provide, say, some type of policing. Now, it doesn't have a 20 millimeter cannon or a machine gun on, on top of it, but it's possible. So let's do a hypothetical. Are we going to give an autonomous decision-making without human oversight the capability to have access to our nuclear codes? So let's run a hypothetical. We have uh, an autonomous decision-making military machine <laughs> military uh, application that is basically sensing heat signatures from missile or east or countermeasures, electronic countermeasures. And it has a rule in its memory that says, huh, if you see this, this, and this, uh, countermeasures, electronics, you see uh, electronics coming out, you see a heat signature, are we going to give that machine the capability to preemptively do a nuclear strike? That's the singularity. That's why people are really worried about autonomous decision-making. How much autonomy without human oversight are we going to give a machine? Uh, is this basically speculative? No. People are discussing it right now, and everybody around the world is very worried about that. So what does this have to do with <laughs> risk and trust? Um, each one of the slides we've discussed over the last five minutes really deal with the issue of risk, the risk of losing your job, the risk of not, <laughs> not being considered for employment, the risk of a radiologist basically being... Um, second, uh, uh, replaced by a machine. The risk of uh, of a, uh, a robot having lethal force, the risk of an autonomous nuclear uh, decision-maker, autonomous decision-maker. Every one of those examples deal with risk. And that's the reason why every standard, every rule, every regulation coming out in the world is basically uh, written around the issue of risk. It's sort of the mothership issue for all AI decision-making. How much risk are we going to have? How is it going to be identified? How is it going to be monitored? And how is it, get, it going to be treated, meaning managed? All of which we'll discuss today in this talk. So let's look at risk. If you have risk, AI risk specifically, what do you need? You need to have trust. People need to be able to trust the machine to make wise, balanced, unbiased decisions. And how do you do that? Well, if you've got, in our world, to have trust, you have to have assurance. Assurance and accountability are the same words as trust. And here's the public policy issue. AI is running ahead of our ability to regulate it. Workers, uh, AI decision-making is impacting all of us. Professions, I think every profession in the world is being disrupted, including quality and reliability. Companies, um, the area of competition now is that is through trust. Whoever can win the trust battle will win the AI battle. Uh, algorithms, there are only so many. Uh, and we'll talk about one of them called gradient descent in a couple minutes. The technology is there. It's, you know, um, the algorithms are very, very similar. There might be little differences in an ML or other type of AI algorithm, but they're very similar. Uh, the large language models, Uh, those are basically specialized and tailored, so you need access to those. 
But what's different? It's really the perception of trust that people have of an algorithm or of a company. And that's going to be the competitive battle from now, probably through the next 10 years. Whoever wins the AI trust battle will win the AI battle. Other issues that we'll discuss probably in the next 10, 15 minutes are issues of definitions, assurance, implementation, reasonableness, transparency, trust, and <laughs> accountability. So let's dive into it. Uh, so here's the essence of what we're going to talk about trust. So first two definitions. One, robotics is really the motion manipulation. Uh, think mechanical. AI, and by the way, robotics is the body. AI is really the head. It's the head of autonomous decision-making and problem-solving. What we're really going to talk about over the next 15 minutes will be the rules of engagement between humans and machines for explicit and implicit decision-making. Again, I'm going to talk about rules of engagement. Another way to say that is assurance. Another way to frame assurance is trust. How do we establish trust between humans and machines for either explicit and implicit decision-making? Uh, the world is trying to figure that out. We are trying to figure that out through our app. Uh, the one that my daughter wants to become a, a zillionaire or what we would call a unicorn. But this is a big issue. And this is really at the core of everything we deal with in terms of AI. Uh, yesterday, Sunday morning, or two days ago, Sunday morning, there was a whole program on military applications of AI. And at the end, it came down to one question. How do we trust the machine? And what type of human oversight, if any, are we going to have on that? I'm trying to simplify that in terms of rules of engagement. Again, rules of engagement are the essence of assurance. The essence of assurance is trust between the human and the machine. So, hey, so, hey Greg, I yeah. got a couple of questions here. Is, there are a couple of comments, but what from Carl is, uh, let me read it here. Just like humans, AI systems can make mistakes. And he cites the example of the, the Tesla car that confused a white tractor trailer for the sky. Mm -hmm. um, but to be trustworthy, AI needs to be able to recognize those mistakes before it's too late. I, I, in, in one of his other comments a little bit while ago is what, I wonder what insurance companies say about all this. Um, so there's two thoughts there, but I'm thinking of the trustworthiness is that the humans aren't all that good at driving. <laughs> so is the criteria just as good as or better than a human? And is that okay for us? Or is it because on a battlefield or in a banking situation, humans make plenty of mistakes. Radiologists make plenty of mistakes. So if they're 99% better or good at identifying it, why aren't we trusting it? Because there's evidence that they are better at this. There's and that's a different right. problem, right? There is a different problem. There's evidence right now that autonomous vehicles are 20 to 30% less, <laughs> will create fewer deaths, highway deaths, than drivers. But again, the perception, and again, a lot of this is perception, <laughs> is we want to have control of our destiny. We want control of our vehicle. We do not do not trust that damn machine. Think contemporary Luddites. <laughs> and right now, for example, and that goes back to that radiologist question, the machine is 99% accurate and the radiologist is 72% accurate, we right now will have that doctor become the interface, again, think rules of engagement between the machine and the human. And that's one of the takeaways that you'll hear in about 15 minutes. All of us dealing with AI, at least for the next 10 years, will be providing risk assurance. That's why I was thinking of making this presentation, I'm, I'm thinking 
rebranding of this presentation to the Europeans as how to double your salary through risk assurance. Um, every professional is going to have to start defining or being the interface between the machine and other humans. That's what our role is going to be. That uh, risk assurance role is the equivalent of have, being in a trust role of communicating person to person. Because the machine right now is becoming better, faster, more accurate, cheaper than we are. And there's going to be a transition, probably a five to 10 year transition, where all of us professionals are going to be really risk assurance professionals. I'm giving you the lead, you know, I'm giving you sort of the end result of this talk early on, but it's something for you to think about. Any other questions? Um, or comments? Uh, or you uh, see, there's one from Brian. <laughs> there's one from Brian that you came up. Well, while AI can and often is better than humans, does that that does not directly equate to trust? Like Greg says, it's a perception. Everything involves some level of risk and really comes down to what level of risk is susceptible and that will vary person to person. Or well, there's a lot of truth to that, Brian. You know, years ago, I wrote an article when Amazon was um, thinking about creating delivery drones, autonomous delivery drones for a region. And meantime, on YouTube, there's plenty of aerial photography platform drones that would crash into people. Usually there was somebody <laughs> driving it, you know, not paying attention to what they're doing. But the um, the question that, that was in the paper was, well, how reliable does it need to be for the public to accept a drone delivering your cup of coffee or whatever? Um, and it's not just simply that it's as good as or better than the truck, you know, for getting it to you on time in safe conditions and all those kinds of things. It's that perception that, and there's no defining number for how much more reliable it has to be, how many more miles it has to drive without accidents before it becomes accepted. Yet, we've also run into this back in the horse and buggy days. There were laws on the books, I think Pennsylvania had it, where if you're in a vehicle and you see a horse and buggy approaching you, you have to dismantle your car and put all the parts in the bushes off the side of the road until the horse and buggy pass you, then you can reassemble your car and get on your way. Because these cars were backfiring and causing a lot of noise and spooking, you know, horses. So they said, well, you can't drive on the same road as a horse, basically. Well, that didn't last all that long, 20 or 30 years, and then cars were the thing. Yes. So maybe this is another talk about rules of engagement between machine and human. But there's words that are legal words. The words or concepts that we haven't even really thought about. Uh, what is responsible? How do you measure that? So why is that important? Because, and this goes back to the slide, in the regulations that are coming out that are being proposed, we're looking at objectives like trust, privacy, ethical uh, transparency. How do we define those? How do we audit that? How do we de develop machine code that will translate each one of these concepts that are very uh, social uh, and legal into a language of zeros and ones? Very, very difficult. Also, how are we going to translate all of those nebulous social concepts and constructs into machine code or logic code that are transparent and explainable? Very hard. One concept I can spend days on is called reasonable. Now, so to, in my world, it's fundamental. Uh, why? Because we provide risk assurance and homeland security, and we have to define reasonables. And reasonable, essentially, in our jurisprudence in the in in the U.S., 
is basically the basis for any decision making. Uh, was it reasonable? Was it a reasonable threat? Was it a reasonable decision? And we have to be able to define reasonableness. Again, that's a rule of engagement between human and machine. All those concepts of trust, privacy, ethics, we need to define, and they're not right now. And a lot of people are trying to figure it out. So what are risks of, again, of autonomous decision-making? And I'm, I just put a bunch of them there. Um, I could probably come up with another hundred of them, but I'm gonna go through those. Uh, but right now we're seeing autonomous decision-making in almost every one of those areas. And the challenge is, the risk, is that in a lot of cases, it's not explainable. Now, even the concept explainability is going to go into stat statute. What the F is explainability? How do we put barriers around that? How do we define that? How do we put an upper and lower control limit? How do we define that in terms of reasonableness? How do Anyway, you get the idea. In our world, and Fred and I were talking about SPC and all that stuff, we have control limit, upper and lower. We have an upper and lower um, uh, requirement specification. Think as a, a law as having upper and lower specification limits. And then an autonomous decision-making machine is gonna have upper and lower control limits. All of that has not been defined, but needs to be because we don't, we're going to have this type of risk. So I'll give you one example, and then I'm going to talk about for the rest of the talk about assurance and trust and how we can develop it and how the world is developing it. So uh, 2020, 2023, New York City came up with law 144. Uh, this is the law and basically says that every employer in the New York metro region has to be risk audited for bias. If they have, if they use any type of autonomous decision-making for employment decisions, they need to have this machine be audited. Great, only one problem. How do you get around it? How do you do it? Uh, they basically went around and around, they loosened it, they even had problems defining terms. What's risk? What is bias? Each one of those topics that I'm discussing, bias, definitions of risk, are rules of engagement between human and machine. Uh, if you want to basically double your salary, start jumping at this area right now. It's brand new. It's very hot. Uh, companies, including ours, that are doing that around the world, you probably can count on both hands. Huge area, billion-dollar emerging market. Again, defining the rules of engagement between human and machine. So I'm going to get into the techie stuff over the next 10 minutes. Uh, if you want more information, reach out. If this is too much and too boring, <laughs> uh, just holler and uh, you know, uh, you know, just get off the conversation. I think. Anyway, um, recapping: AI involves risk, risk in many areas. Uh, we need to have trust. How do you develop trust? Is through assurance. If you are a government agency, the equivalent of assurance is accountability. And there's a, that's a whole nother discussion. There's a lot of parsing going on about the language, the rules of engagement, the definitions, the taxonomy of this whole issue of AI trust. But from my point of view, and I think we're the only ones doing this, I'm gonna define it in terms of three simple questions. The three simple questions of developing AI trust or assurance are what, how, and who, what. 
What are the standards to assure compliance and adherence? Two, how? How will assurance accountability be audited or assessed? Three, who? Who will conduct audits and assessments? And over the next 10 minutes, I'm going to try to answer every one of those questions. So hang on, have some fun with it. So AI, the U.S. uses what we call a principles-based approach. Europeans, probably the Japanese, most of Asia, use a uh, procedural-based approach. So the AI, the White House in October 2022, a couple of months ago, developed what, well, no, one year ago, developed the AI Bill of Rights. It has five elements, and you can see those right now. I'm not going to discuss those. If you're interested in, again, these are what elements, what principles. Remember, we have four questions. What, how, and who. I'm first going to discuss what, then I'm going to discuss how, and then I'm going to discuss who in terms of developing assurance and trust. So we have a principles-based approach. Uh, the Europeans have a, a procedural-based approach. Here's our five principles. Here's our what. And again, if you go back to the slide on page three, my daughter has developed her unicorn app <laughs> based on the AI RMF. And by the way, we have a strong trademark on that. So uh, be ready to buy it next year. And hopefully uh, she'll make a lot of money. If she does, she'll pay me a pittance in salary. So anyway, uh, this basically is the what standard of the AI that was developed in January of this year. It was developed by NIST. This is a guideline. Again, it's not a standard. It's a guideline. So it's optional. It's inclusive. It is basically discretionary. The EU. The EU basically has an act called the AI Act. They started development. And by the way, this is procedural. They started it in two years ago. It'll go in effect in 2025, probably. And it basically looks at AI systems in terms of four systems. Unacceptable risk, high risk, limited, meaning generative AI, and then limited risk. This is a critical takeaway in the slide. All level two AI programs or or autonomous decision-making will be audited, risk audited. And we're going to talk about that. Canada, their what is ISO 42000. That is next month's talk with Fred. Uh, this standard, I think, is going to be 100, maybe 10 times bigger than ISO 9001. So give you a scope. One million companies worldwide are certified to ISO 9001. I think that 10 million companies are going to be certified to ISO 42001. That's my talk next month. It's at the FDIS stage. It's not even out yet. But I'm going to be talking about context. And if you heard last month's talk, it's worth 20 IQ points. Performance, risk assessment, risk treatment. And here's the EU, EU's how. Remember, we're looking at four questions for AI assurance or AI trust. Uh, what are you going to audit against? How are you going to conduct that assurance? And three, who's going to conduct it? So for EU how, they're going to use the conformity assessment model. If you're not familiar with the conformity assessment model, every electronic product Every product, essentially, that's used or purchased in Europe that's used offshore, meaning out of the UK, out of the EU, has a CE mark to it. It's basically called a product mark. Uh, I became involved with it with 35 years ago with, um, I was in the oil and gas industry, with um, a valves. Every valve we purchased in North America that we use for gas think natural gas, methane, has a CE mark attached to it. At that point, in, at 1987, we went from a CE mark to 
certified management systems. The EU is using conformity assessment in five different ways. They're using the CE mark for AI software, and they're putting that in a regulation. They're offering some manufacturers the abilities to self-declare compliance. Now, again, self-declaration for compliance is very good if you have a very strong legal department and you are, you're aware of the nuancing of self-declaration. Self the third option that the EU is looking at is called third-party assessment, think ISO management systems. The fourth is risk-based auditing based on ISO 19,011-2018. I've written a book on it. You can basically do Hutchins risk-based auditing and get the book. And the fourth, fifth option that the EU folks are looking at is watermarking or coming up with labels, trust labels for AI systems. So those are the five methods right now being used by Europe. Now, why is that significant? Well, in the U.S., we're still at the what phase. What standards are we going to audit against or adhere to? We're still developing, we're still debating that. And we're going to de debate that for the next three years. In the meantime, the Europeans, the EU, are five years ahead of us. And what's going to happen is the US government, whether it's uh, uh, Biden administration, Trump, or whoever else, we're going to have to probably defer to what the Europeans are doing because they're so far ahead of us. If we defer to them, the how is gonna be one of those five options that you see on the bottom of the page. The other option, the other option is what we call the commercial option. Uh, the commercial option is basically in the absence of any regulation. And by the way, every one of the big companies in North America involved with AI, Amazon, uh, <laughs> Microsoft, all of them want regulation. All of them want standards. When you talk standards, three questions. What, how, and who? We don't have that. Uh, we're still two, three years away from them. What we're going to do is probably defer to the Europeans. So in the place of that, or in the absence of standards or regulation, uh, we have OECD, we have Penn State, we have Twilio in the middle, basically, and we have our company on the lower left. Each of us are coming up with our own standards. What, how, and who for basically creating AI assurance, risk assurance. Is this okay? In the absence of regulation, in the absence of standards, in the absence of... Uh, 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 CFRs or federal regs, this is what the marketplace will do. And right now, the marketplace is the wild, wild west. Finally, we talked about the what and the how. Now we're going to talk about who. IEEE has got the certified, uh, <laughs> certified AI standard that they just developed a couple months ago. It's a mark of AI ethics. ISO has their QMS standard. You can see it in the lower left. And our company has Certified Enterprise Risk Manager uh, that you can see CIRM on the lower right. In the absence of regulation, every one of those is a legitimate way for meeting a marketplace need. So what gives us the right to do or the authority or the knowledge expertise to do what we did do. In 19, excuse me, 2007, our company, Quality Plus Engineering, became the first company approved by the secretary of DHS for critical infrastructure protection, forensics assurance analytics. And that's what we did for uh, almost 20 years. Basically, what that did from the U.S. government is we would basically audit a critical infrastructure, think nuke plant, chemical plant. And by the way, SIP, critical infrastructure protection, is federal ease for Homeland Security. 
And we were the first company, and frankly, the only company given this authority by the US government to audit a, a facility. We would give them a clean bill, bill of health, basically assurance. And our insurance would backstop them if there was a breach up to 10 million. And the feds would basically backstop us up to billions, tens of billions of dollars if there was an incident, if there was asymmetric warfare, if there was a breach. So here's our model. It's a commercial model for assurance, specifically AI assurance, specifically AI trust. Going from top to bottom, the higher the risk of AI decision-making, the more types of assurance that we're gonna provide. So the lowest level assurance is basically analytical risk analysis. If you have critical infrastructure, think military codes, nuclear codes, nuclear power plant, we're gonna conduct, again, we're a professional engineering company, we're gonna conduct a forensic assurance analysis. And this is the model that we've used for the government for almost 20 years, and it works. So I'm gonna finish off this talk with AI futures. Wow, what a topic. Um, right now, different countries in the world are looking at the same thing and attaching their label for AI into the same thing. So the Chinese, who are probably five years ahead of us, are using AI for surveillance, finance, self-driving vehicles, autonomous warfare. And the language they're using for AI is social cohesion but essentially it's a police state from our point of view. We look at AI in terms of transparency, equity, justice. So what we have basically in terms of AI is the beginning of a different type of Cold War. It's not a Cold War based upon mad, mutually assured destruction. It's a Cold War based on information, intrusion, monitoring, and control. So um, I'm going to talk about some of the challenges from implementing AI assurance. And again, I'm giving this talk once a week <laughs> over the next six weeks, five, six weeks. So if you have any comments, please share them with me. I need to get smarter. I need to take this talk and make it a little bit bigger. Uh, here are the, just a couple of the challenges. I'm going to talk about trust and assurance challenges work career job challenges and basically wrap this up in a couple of minutes. Right now, in terms of trust and assurance, we have in ISO 40 different definitions of risk. Two, we don't have a taxonomy of risk assurance. Three, we have different frameworks. Uh, in our case, we've actually trademarked our own two frameworks very strong frameworks for AI assurance. Uh, one is called architecture, design, deployment, and assurance. And this is what's happening. This is the wild, wild west. Things are changing so quickly that AI is a gorilla with fewer no guardrails and a lack of common understanding. In the meantime, the US is five years behind the EU and the EU is utterly confused right now about what they're doing and how they're going to manage this. So here's one of the big risks with AI. Um, college, white collar workers, think lawyers, think engineers, think reliability engineers, <laughs> think radiologists. Um, it's not gonna be business as usual. These machines are very smart. They're making better decisions than the professionals. And that begs the role. Why do we need a professional anymore? My solution is that the professional, at least for the next 10 years, is going to become a risk assurance professional, nuancing the rules of engagement between machine and human. Um, this is from the 
CEO, ex-CEO of Google, the real issue when you start manipulating AI in the information space is you're manipulating human behavior. That's how most of, that's how China right now and probably much of the world is going to be using AI. Just think what happens when you have that robot and it has facial recognition, has access to everybody's identity, and it has lethality, a lethal weapon. Not only is it going to be manipulating human behavior, it's going to be possibly uh, dousing it, killing it. So as a leave behind, here are five things to think about. AI. Um, how's it going to be regulated? Who's going to regulate it? And by the way, when I say regulation, it's really developing risk assurance and trust in AI decision-making. Again, regulation is more from the public policy, governmental point of view, but for the way it's going to be deployed, it's really about trust. Trust is another way of saying, what are the rules of engagement between man and machine? And how are we gonna build assurance around that risk assurance? Anyway, a little heavy talk, didn't mean to get into it, but uh, uh, anyway, if you have any AI projects you want audited, we'd like to hear from you, just give us a holler. So that's it. If you have questions, comments, or you have a you suck Greg, <laughs> please put <laughs> no, that in the chat and uh, you know, I'll probably cry for the rest of the day. <laughs> I doubt that, I know you better than that. So Nasser asked a question, or it was a comment. Um, some designers of color-sensitive AI are already accused for bias. Yep. You know, and my thought is that yeah, it's easy to assert a bias or or recognize a bias. Is it's really hard to what's the solution for it? Uh, and we we get that in our measurement systems all the time, right? We we know that uh, our measurement systems are not perfect. There's Often a bias is one of the many ways our measurement systems don't work. So we put an offset on it. <laughs> you know, we calibrate it more often. We do stuff to to improve that. So it's what I find disconcerting is plenty of people to say, well, it's biased. Okay, so what are you going to do about it? You want to comment on that? Well, yeah. So, yeah, you know, we're all engineers in one form or another. And uncertainty is basically baked into any type of analysis we do. The issue from a public policy or trust is what is reasonable? What is the threshold that a certain bias is going to be acceptable? Those things all have to be defined. That's what I mean, the rules of engagement between man and machine. Here we're talking calibration. We need to have a reasonableness threshold for what's acceptable bias or what's not acceptable. And by the way, you can ask that question for anything and everything. Yeah, that's true. Um, Brian brings up, says China's already using AI to assign, in quotes, social credit. And uh, numerous <laughs> articles on this. It makes me think of, there's a recent Star Trek episode. I don't know what, episode, <laughs> what series it was, but it was, they were basically on this planet where everybody had a badge that, if somebody liked your shoes, they could punch on their device that they gave you one up vote kind of thing. If they really liked your performance singing on the street, you get a bunch of up points and that gave you social credibility. It gave you cred, <laughs> right? And it had benefits. And the opposite side, if you you know don't hold the door open for somebody, they give you a negative point. And if you get too many negative points, um, you get, and it's a science fiction story, uh, you get realigned which basically meant your brain is wiped and and you forget everything and you restart but science fiction often takes these things to the extremes and just you know makes a story out of it or, or makes us uh makes you think about some of this stuff um that's where i think your gorilla and the guardrails comes in is yeah social credit okay what's the nuances of that? How do you, you know, people are going to game it for their own benefit. You want so me Brian, to comment on that? 
Yeah, let me add, Brian brought in another piece here. The consequence of poor social credit score could be serious. It may affect travel prospects, employment, access to finance, and ability to enter into contracts. On the other hand, a positive credit score could make a range of business transactions much easier. So, I mean, on the face of that, if you play by the rules and are cooperative and help other people, if that's parts of the, the scoring process, then that's great. If it's manipulated, then it's not. But anyway, go ahead, Greg. Oh, boy. So in high school, I read a book called 1984 by Aldous Huxley. And basically, it's, you know, authoritarian government. And there was a great little tagline there called uh, double talk, double think. Yeah. Uh, right now, and I'll just hearken back to that, that expression. One person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. Um, the term in a euphemism speak that the Chinese use are social credits uh, and the impacts are social uh, uh, social shaming as well as economic uh, depression. And the other term they use a lot is what's called social cohesion. All those terms basically are 1984 derivatives of some type of governmental control. And all of those are going to be exacerbated, if not accelerated, by AI. And that's why I go back and I posited this thing of 20, 30 years ago, we had us in the Soviet Union having sort of adversity, you know, the, the wall. Now it's basically going to be a thing of AI, you know, uh, us and Soviets or the Russians and Chinese and other, you know, authoritarian governments. They're going to look at AI from a freedom, from a freedom fighters perspective. We're going to be looking at it from a terrorist perspective. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of double think and a lot of nuancing um, about this whole thing. Uh, you know, think of Kabuki. Kabuki is a Japanese art form. And the basic idea behind Kabuki is what you see is not really what's happening. What you understand is not really what you understand. There's like peels of an onion, right? The more you look in this thing of AI, of AI assurance, the more you see and more you don't understand. That's my takeaway of being into this business for a while, trying to explain it. <laughs> anyway, right. any comments or thoughts? Well, I think we dried it up there. Thanks for everybody that commented and participated in it. Thanks for your attending. Um, Brian brought up another one. Uh, another problem is that AI does not eliminate issues like unconsidered or unaddressed failure modes. Uh, you know, Brian, I, I have been underwhelmed with AI on reliability-related questions, but I, I imagine it's going to get better. Um, it, yet it's going to be curious. Uh, uh, Marianne's excellent explanation of AI impact and very important to share with a wider audience. Will recording be available and where? Yes. I haven't set it up yet, but I'm moving all of our wet recorded webinars to a new platform that enables you, if you had, if you weren't here live, then to get a, to view the webinar and you, you can get a certificate of attendance, which is suitable for recertification points and other stuff like that. And so I'd have, like I said, I haven't set it up yet and it usually takes me a day or two to get it posted. So Marianne, I'm gonna put the this webinar um, on a page that you should be able to get to. Don't hold me to it. If you have any issues, give me an email and I'll, we'll, send you the proper link for it. Um, it's going to be ascendoverliability.com slash go slash webinars. And it's, um, I'm working my way through our repository of all these webinars. And I'm starting as of this one with Greg's is to put the, the new events into the system also. So it should be up in a day or two. Um, and if you have any trouble getting to it or you want to recommend it to somebody else, let me know. 
and it's very much a work in progress. So if you see anything in there you'd want to um, uh, comment on or improve or whatever, let me know. And same with Greg. Um, there's, you got your phone number there. Greg, you had a slide with your email someplace, didn't you? If you could put yeah, that probably, up. Probably early on. Um, yeah. You know, the big thing is um, pay attention to this. This is going to be really important. That's, that's the takeaway. All right. Well, thanks so much, Greg. And uh, thanks for yes, everybody's sir. comments and stuff. Um, let's see, Dan's bringing up something. We're just, we're bringing in the comments now. Um, uh, Marianne says, thanks. Dan's bringing in, I, I agree with Fred's comment about being underwhelmed with AI and the reliability world. I think it's funny because as a reliability guy, my first thing is to try to break it. And it's been staggeringly easy to trip it up. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a sport at this point. Um, that might be part of the auditing process, you know, figure out how to how it, it goes off the rails. But um, um, all right, good. Well, it looks like folks are spearing off uh, to the rest of their day. Greg, you left us with plenty of things to think about. Appreciate that, and we we'll look forward to. Uh, having you back next month with an, another topic on that AI-related uh, ISO standard. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, this is a great way to uh, double, triple your salary. Anyway, I'll let you go. <laughs> Fred, you ate those those clicky baits, but anyway, have a great one. Bye-bye, buddy. All right, talk to you later, Greg.